0: Taken as we work through the book of Revelation, once again from Revelation chapter 8, page 1921, uh, beginning at verse 1. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour, and I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. The smoke of the incense, together with the prayers of the saints, went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. The word of the Lord Lord I pray that you would help me to be clear and concise and compelling and practical true to Scripture and Lord we pray for the power and presence of the Holy Spirit who alone can take your written word and write it on our hearts that you would do so for Jesus sake amen now if you recall we've been thinking about uh, this Uh, for about two weeks, and I had quoted uh, an Oxford professor uh, who said the best way to understand the book of Revelation is as a symphony, as a symphony. And so in a symphony, you may get a theme from the past, and it plays out again and and again. And then there are fugues where this theme and that theme compete against each other. And if we think of the book of Revelation that way, I think we're on really solid ground because it's not given for us to put a chart on the back wall here and to figure out, well, now, uh, as we are on October the 15th, 2023, and what's going on in the Middle East right now and between Russia and the Ukraine and China and Taiwan and us, and all these things to know exactly, well, we know exactly what's going to happen next week. That's not the purpose of the book. The purpose of the book is to encourage us to be fast, steadfast, to hold on to the Lord. And the themes of the book are taken, if you go back to Genesis, all the way through the Old Testament. The book of Revelation takes all of those things kind of, again, like a musical uh, a note here and a musical note there, and weaves them together into this magnificent symphony that concludes with the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and the restoration of Eden on earth. And so we we looked last week and we thought about when did this take place? What are these prophecies about? And I laid out to you that there are several schools of thought there is the preterist, and that is that this was fulfilled substantially in the first century. There's the futurist that tends to ignore that and looks at pretty much all of it in the future. There, there is the historicist, and uh, I had a good friend who died. He helped me with my doctoral dissertation named uh, Nigel Lee. And Nigel Lee was a committed historicist. He believed it was history, the whole of Christian history, written from the beginning and going forward, so that when you get to Revelation 9, which we will be getting to, God willing, within a week or two, uh, it's the prophecy of the coming of Islam. And uh, the first coming of Islam with Muhammad and uh, his conquest there of the Arabian Peninsula and then pretty much of the, of the Middle East and uh, North Africa and crossing over uh, into Spain and Portugal. And then the second part of Revelation 9, uh, this is the historicist view which is the majority of Protestants believed that until the beginning of the 20th century, is a prophecy of the fall of Constantinople with that those big Polish cannons uh, that were uh, hired out by Mehmet II Met, uh, when he conquered Constantinople by firing those big guns that broke down the walls of the greatest city the world has ever known in 1453. So that's the Historicist view. Now, what do I believe? I believe there is always truth in any set of doctrines that Bible-believing Christians have set forth. There is truth. Notice I said there is truth. I didn't say that they all have the truth, absolutely. So as I look at this book, I'm compelled towards a somewhat preterist view, that this is focused on the first century. And I think As we looked at, and if you didn't get to hear last week's sermon, it is on Sermon Audio. Uh, The video is there. There's also the transcript. Whenever I uh, do the transcript, I spend a lot of time annotating with references and so on. But I think that it's focused fundamentally, but not exclusively. Because remember this about Bible prophecy. If you go back to the Old Testament again and again, the prophecies in Isaiah have an initial fulfillment in the time of Isaiah, but they don't exhaust those prophecies. Take the prophecy of the virgin birth. That, I believe, and again, you'd have to go back to the sermons, is a reference to Isaiah's second wife. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. You'll call his name Emmanuel. And I think you can prove that conclusively and absolutely within the book of Isaiah itself. But, this is so important, that doesn't exhaust it. Prophecy recapitulates itself over and over and over again. So the ultimate fulfillment of the prophecy of the virgin birth, Isaiah 7.14, is in the case of the blessed Virgin Mary, who conceived the Lord Jesus Christ as a pure virgin and gave birth to him as her firstborn son. And that is the ultimate fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. So again, prophecies have an initial fulfillment, and then they recapitulate over and over again in in some cases. So as we look at this, we don't want to rule out the future uh, aspect of these things. But let's take a moment and look at something that I think is very critical to understanding This middle section here of the trumpets. Because remember that the seven seals open up the seven trumpets. And so if you turn with me over to Revelation chapter 11, page 1924, and verse 7. Now when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Verse 8. Their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. Scratch your head for a moment. Where was Jesus crucified? He was crucified in Jerusalem. And this indicates something to us very powerful. Jerusalem is Sodom. Jerusalem is Egypt. And these judgments were coming on Jerusalem, which is, we're told here, figuratively called Sodom and Egypt. Let's see how that bears out for a moment. Turn with me, if you will, to the left, to Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 10. Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 10. And listen to the words that Isaiah says there. Ah, in Isaiah 110, and that's on page 1060. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Who's he talking to? Isaiah is a prophet of the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah. He prophesies during the time when the northern kingdom is sent off into exile under the Assyrians and the fall of Assyria in 722. I mean, the fall of Samaria in 722 the northern kingdom he's a prophet of the southern kingdom the leadership of the southern kingdom is in Jerusalem and listen to what he says what does he say to the rulers of Jerusalem he says hear the word of the lord you rulers of Sodom listen to the law of our god you rulers of Gomorrah and it's taking them task and he's telling them All these things you're sacrificing to me, they're no good. They're no value because your heart is estranged from me. Your hearts are just like the hearts of the rulers of Sodom and Gomorrah who didn't have a heart for God. So, Jerusalem is Sodom. Now, holding your hand there, let's go over to Ezekiel chapter 16. Ezekiel chapter 16. And this is a a chapter that very few people will ever preach on. But I've preached on it before. And uh, because it's so lurid and colorful. And so in, in uh, Ezekiel chapter 16 and beginning in verse 46, that's on page uh, 1306. Look at what he says in verse 46. Your older sister was Samaria. He's writing to the Jewish people, the people who lived in Judah, and he's writing as a priest because he was taken into captivity uh, uh, under the Babylonians, and he is foretelling the fall of Jerusalem. And he's addressing the rulers there with a very potent metaphor. And what is that potent m- metaphor here he says your older sister was samaria the northern kingdom who lived to the north with with you north of you with her daughters and your younger sister who lived to the south of you with her daughters was sodom you not only walked in their ways and copied their detestable practices but in all your ways you sub- you soon became more depraved than They, do you remember what the Lord Jesus said as he was dealing with the cities uh, in the Galilee that had ignored his teaching, that had witnessed all these things, and he said, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for Sodom than for you. Let that sink in for a moment. It will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for Sodom than for you. That's very serious, isn't it? What does that mean? It means one thing right now, I'll say. If you are self righteous, if you believe yourself to be better than other people, if you look down on other races, other religions, other cultures, and you think yourself secure because of who you are, that's exactly what the people were doing in Jesus' day, particularly the Pharisees. They looked down on other people. And Jesus said, It's going to be more tolerable for the people of Sodom on the day of judgment than it will be for you. And that says something else to us. The people of Sodom didn't just get burned up and that's that, death and all over. The people of Sodom will stand before God one day as the people of the United States will, as the people of Israel and the Gaza Strip and Ukraine and Russia and China will stand before God one day. And all of those people who look down on others, who thought themselves to be superior to others because of their great moral integrity, it will be more tolerable for those who have been resurrected to stand before God in judgment from Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment then for them. And again, so in Ezekiel chapter uh, 16, he says here, In verse 49, what was the sin of Sodom? You ever thought about it? It's not what people think. He says, this was the sin of your sister Sodom, she and her daughters. They were arrogant. Arrogance? You mean that's the sin of Sodom? Yeah, let's read on. Overfed. And that's not just that they had pot bellies and I, I need to take off a few pounds. He says and unconcerned they were apathetic. They had too much money. You have too much money? I think of that song from, uh, from Gershwin's Poor and Bess, I got plenty of nothing and nothing's plenty for me. Rich folks he says, they got to Worry all today how to keep the devil away. And so what was Sodom? It was it was the United States of America. If you want to look at a pattern, a very wealthy nation. We're the wealthiest nation in the history of the world. And what do we spend our wealth on? Self-aggrandizement. We're bored. We just have something more to titillate ourselves and to stimulate ourselves. And so he says, arrogant, overfed, unconcerned. They did not help the poor and the needy. The poor and the needy. I like this bulletin cover, call to serve. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers or sisters of mine, you did for me. What does God give you money? God gives you money to share it. When God gives you wealth and power, wealth and power, or mammon, when he gives you wealth and power, he means for you to use it to help the poor and powerless. And so here's Sodom again. Look at that. Verse 50. They were haughty. They were haughty. They were in the junior league. They were Rotarians. They were this, they were that. I used to be a Rotarian, so I'm not condemning Rotarians as such. I'm simply saying they looked down on other people. They were blue bloods. They, didn't, they looked down on others. So there they are. And what's the last thing? What do bored people do? What do people who don't have to eke out a living daily uh, by hard, hard work to feed themselves and their families do? Here it is. Here's the last one. And the last one is what they're famous for. And they did detestable things before me. They did detestable things before me. A culture that is wealthy and apathetic and bored ends up in all kinds of sexual experiments that call down the fire of God. That's what they do. And that's, why that's what they're famous for. But we fail to realize what led them to that sense of sexual experimentation and all of the perverted things. And so the key here is to understand something. And that is that when Jesus is speaking to the rulers of the Jewish people in his day and he's calling them Sodom, what he's doing is saying, Exactly what Isaiah said, exactly what Ezekiel said, and we just go on very quickly in that passage. And he says, He says there in, the, in verse 52: Bear your disgrace, for you have furnished some justification for your sisters, because your sins were more vile than theirs. This is the sins of the of the Judeans. Your sins were more vile than theirs they appear more righteous than you, so then be ashamed and bear your disgrace, for you have made your sisters appear righteous. Wow! What do you think that the Jewish people living in Ezekiel's day, when they got this prophetic word sent down to them from where he was in Babylonia, what do you think their reaction was? The same reaction that modern American so-called Christians react to any preacher who will preach from the Bible! Look at what he says again. He said, So then, be ashamed and bear your disgrace, for you have made your sisters, Sodom and Samaria, appear righteous. He says, wow, wow, wow. Now, going back to Revelation, the judgment is on Sodom. Who is Sodom in Revelation 11 and in verse uh? Eight. Sodom is where Jesus was crucified. Wait a minute. I thought he was he was crucified in Jerusalem, just outside the gates of the city. Do you mean that they took Jesus down to the Dead Sea, to the southern end of the Dead Sea, and they nailed him to a cross there in in the in the ruins of Sodom, which are actually under the Dead Sea, and uh, that black mud they'll rub on you uh, is. Are the cremains of the Sodomites and the Gomorites. Sandy and I had that treatment uh, in 2008 with, when she and her sister and I uh, traveled to Jordan and Egypt. What is he saying? He's talking about the present city of Jerusalem that existed prior to the Romans destroying it, where not one stone was left standing on another. Wow, what is the Wailing Wall? The Wailing Wall is the foundation of the Temple of Solomon. But the Temple of Solomon was destroyed in A.D. 70, and all that remains of it are the foundation stones when the temple was, in 19 B.C., uh, rebuilt, massive remodeling program under half-Edomite, half-Jewish man uh, named Herod the Great. So there he's saying it, and he's calling that city of Jerusalem, Sodom. Notice what else he says. He was crucified in Egypt. Now Jesus traveled to Egypt because of Herod the Great, his persecutions. He was warned to leave His, uh, his adopted father, Joseph, and his biological mother, Mary, were warned by God to flee. And they fled to Egypt. And so fulfilled a prophecy, Out of Egypt have I called my son. But Jesus lived in Egypt briefly, but he was not crucified there. Where was he crucified? He was crucified in the city of Jerusalem. And Jesus foretold. In Matthew 23, at the very end of that chapter, he says, O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered your children to me? Like a mother hen gathers her biddies underneath her, but you were not willing. In other words, the leadership of Jerusalem, the leadership politically and religiously, hindered the work of the Lord Jesus Christ to call the Jewish people to Himself. And you know why He's why He's crucified. The people were following Jesus, but the political and religious leaders plant people in the in the mob to cry to Herod I mean to Pontius Pilate not Jesus but Barabbas and when Pilate washes his hands and he says I'm innocent of the blood of this just man of course like all politicians uh, that was symbolic he couldn't wash away his responsibility but then this hideous cry this horrible cry goes up from the people when he says I'm innocent of the blood of this righteous man. And they said. His blood be on us and on our children. Whoa. Oh my. They're snared by the words of their mouth. And what happens? Jesus had said that within a generation. That is 40 years. Jesus is crucified. In 30 A.D. And in A.D. 70. 70. His words were literally, graphically, absolutely fulfilled. His blood be on us. Now those people who repented of their sins and cast themselves on the Lord Jesus Christ were saved, they were delivered. They understood a prophecy that was in the Gospel of Luke. And they fled. They fled. Wow. But those who remained only became more arrogant more self-confident, more self-righteous. They were dominated by the zealots. Read the writings of an eyewitness of the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. And that was a Jewish general by the name of Flavius Josephus. That was his adopted name because when he went up against the Romans, he realized it was a hopeless battle, and so he turned over himself and his armies, Uh, to the Roman general Vespasian. And then he became an apologist for what happened and said, my own people forced this to happen by their arrogance and rebellion against God. And he's the greatest source of information of first century Judaism. And he tells us the story nine years later of what happened in Masada. I've been to Masada. And what happened is that remnant of zealots... The zealots were so zealous, they didn't care what they were doing to their own people. They murdered the Jewish people. They murdered many, many other people in their zeal to establish an arm against Rome, believing that they could somehow or another defeat the Roman armies. And so finally, these zealots, knowing that the end is near, they escape Jerusalem, and they go out into the Judean wilderness, and they capture... Herod's great fortress that overlooked the Dead Sea, Masada. And as I mentioned last week, that's what happened there. When the Romans finished their massive engineering feat, building a ramp to go up to Masada. And finally, when they, when they used their uh, ramrods and break in, there's a survivor. The survivor had hid, hid themselves, and they uh, report what had happened. The zealots were so full of hatred and jealousy and strife and bitterness that they drew lots and they murdered their own children, their own spouses, murdered one another, and the last person to be alive, so far as they knew, murdered himself, suicide. It's just like Islamic, Islamicist suicide bombers. Wow. God doesn't approve of suicide. And in the modern Israeli state, founded in 1948, where do Jewish soldiers go to take their oath of allegiance? They go to the place of mass suicide. Wow, that's like going to Jonestown and pledging allegiance to Jim Jones. That's like the Muslims who will blow their own children up. I'm not talking about all Muslims, I'm talking about Islamicism, which is the version of Islam closest to the Quran, And you know, when you look at modern conflict in the Middle East, you need to never forget what is found in the Al-Hadith. And in the Hadith, Muhammad receives a word. And he says, Oh Muhammad, don't put down your sword. There's a Jew hiding over there. Go and kill him. True Islam according to the Quran and the Al-Hadith, is about annihilating the Jewish people. Wow, wow, wow. And that's why people will sometimes strap bombs on their own children and send them into a marketplace. And that's what happened at Masada in AD 70. So again, he's saying something here that's striking. And he warns them. He warns them. Look. Remember. Remember what happened. And I'm going to stop there and, God willing, pick it up next week and look at Egypt because Egypt is in view as well. And if you look at the first uh, of the trumpet blasts, those trumpet blasts reflect the curses on Egypt in the Exodus. If you'll look over that perhaps this afternoon before next week. And before I close, finally, I want to address these words to anyone who may be watching on the internet. You know, we live in perilous times. I have no idea what is going to happen in the Middle East. And I want to say, our prayer should be, for the warring children of Abraham. Whoa, the warring children of Abraham. Never forget, you have Ishmael as well as Isaac. Never forget that you have Esau as well as Jacob. And never forget that so many people became believers in the Lord Jesus Christ in the first century. You had hundreds of priests who converted. Priests! Those who were permitted to go inside the temple. You had hundreds of priests who became Christians, who became followers of Lord Jesus Christ in the first decades of the Christian century uh, following the outpouring of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. You had thousands upon thousands of Jewish people who embraced the Lord Jesus as their Lord and King and Messiah. And those people were able to escape the terrible, terrible tragedy that fell to the city of Jerusalem when the Civil War broke out in AD 66, climaxed in the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. And so currently, we see a war between Abraham's warring children, fighting over a piece of real estate. I want to tell you the piece of real estate that really matters is the heavenly Jerusalem. And my citizenship is there, and it'll never be taken away from me. How do I know that? I know that because I have repented of my sins. I've turned from my sins and cast myself on God's mercy in the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you ever done that? Have you ever done that? It's so easy in modern America. Well, it used to be in the first part of the 20th century. So easy in modern America to be a church goer externally moral, and yet not have a heart for God? Here's a question I'd ask you. You believe you're a Christian. Do you delight in God? Do you enjoy God? Do you look forward to being in his presence through prayer and study of his word? Do you delight in gathering with God's people to adore him? If you don't, I would urge you to question yourself. St. Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 13 and said, examine yourself. These were church-going people. Examine yourselves to see whether you be in Christ. Would you do that? And if you would commit your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, please contact me, and I'll be happy to help you follow up. May we pray. Lord, bless this word that as we ponder it, we may apply our hearts to the ways of wisdom, that we may know Jesus and love Jesus and live for Jesus. For Jesus' sake, amen. Our closing hymn.